Welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinney, and in this podcast, I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. In this episode, I catch up with my buddy, Ryan Lavner, one of the reporters at the Golf Channel. Like me, Ryan turned his interest in sports and lack of athleticism into a career in sports journalism. Sometimes he even approaches the tournaments he has to cover with the same mental focus of the golfers on the course. I mean, every every Sunday walking into a major, like like going into the press room on Sunday, like I'm legit nervous. Right. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with the tournament. I want to write the best story because, I mean, you can write the best story you want on, on Friday, the PGA Championship. No one's going to remember it. But if you can write the definitive story, and I'm always trying to write the definitive game story of what happened at the 2021 Open Championship, like that is my intention. And so to me, you know, you just want to write and, and live up to the moment. So for me, like Sunday, I'm always nervous. Um, I'm always anxious. Um, I'm always kind of going a million miles an hour just because I, I want to do a really good job. And I think whenever that feeling fades is when I'll, I'll know that it's probably time to, to do something else. Right. Like, I think, again, this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but like I've heard professional athletes say like, if I'm not nervous on the first tee or if I'm not nervous before a game seven, like that's when I know that I probably shouldn't be doing this anymore. And I kind of feel the same way um, about writing. And, and that still feels the way the same way now heading into Sundays as it did when I first started at golf week in 2010. Um, in fact, it's probably ratcheted up a little bit more just because there's a little bit more eyeballs on on the sport and what I'm doing now um, for Golf Channel. Ryan's journey to the preeminent golf media outlet in the world came through hard work, determination, and focus. And that journey got its start, like so many other talented sports writers, in Athens at the University of Georgia's Grady College. But for a kid from western New York, Athens is quite a long way from home to seek out a degree in journalism. I wish I had a better story to tell you. Um, I Googled best journalism programs. Uh, and at the time, Georgia was number three behind Missouri and Northwestern, I believe. And I had zero interest uh, in going there. Obviously, living um, just south of Rochester, Syracuse uh, had a great journalism program. It was about 90 minutes away from where I lived. And I did a summer journalism camp there and just absolutely hated it. I just couldn't see myself um, spending four years there. And so there was a lot of appealing aspects about Georgia from, you know, the year on great weather, um, being able to cover big time, um, athletics was certainly appealing for what I knew that I wanted to do. Um, and I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that while I was there. And then, um, being around Southern bells for four years also, also seemed like a good idea. I mean, it, it, it was very strong when I worked at the Banner Herald, and we'll talk about the Banner Herald in a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> when I worked there, we had an assistant sports editor who came down from Connecticut, and he was kind of iffy, you know, he was on the fence about it, and we took him out for drinks that night, and I think at midnight, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm taking this job. <laughs> did, did you go Did you go to, did you go to taco stand? Uh, we made it there at some point, I'm pretty sure. We started at the old Washington Street Tavern, which I think was long gone by like 20... 10 2009 that area yeah and i mean i graduated 09 started fall of 2005 that doesn't that doesn't necessarily ring a bell but i, I had my i had my haunts and, and stuck to them yeah taco stand was a pretty big i mean we that was always like that was a huge that was a huge banner herald yeah uh, it, stomping ground it was the tavern for us that was in the 90s um 
because I'm old, man. Let me get break. I was going to say that. I mean, I, I saw the I saw the gray hair. I didn't know you were quite that old. 43. Are you really? Well, yeah. you just have such a, a youthful, boyish. a youthful yeah. appearance to you. Just boyish charm. I mean, and look, I, I mean, I still have my hair kind of, you know, I mean, I kind of I kind of do as well. Yeah. Um, but no, the tavern was sort of the media, the media place uh, for all of us to uh, to go to. So um, we uh, we would that was where we would wind up. And then taco stand was usually later in the day. Of um, course. I, I don't think I, I don't think I ever saw the inside of taco stand before like 10 p.m. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I haven't had a meal there in like 15 years. I just would go eat. I would just go drink at nighttime. Um, Correct. So you you wanted to do sports journalism. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Like it was it wasn't even like I don't I didn't have a plan B. And I, I still don't I still don't really have a plan B right now as I'm 34 years old and now uh, with Golf Channel for more than more than nine years. Uh, like I just didn't have one as a kid. Like I was obsessed with sports. I loved uh, I love thinking about it. I love watching it. I loved writing about it. Um, so I knew basically in middle school that I was going to do sports journalism. And even in, in high school, I mean, I was writing for my hometown newspaper, writing for my school newspaper. I got super fortunate um, that my high school journalism professor was a former editor of Time Magazine, awesome. Judith Hermio. She was a former editor. Um, so she really imbued just a sense of, of love and, and, and self-confidence that, that I could make a, make a good living out of it, um, which I've been fortunate to do. So like there was, there was literally nothing else. I have no other meaningful or like worthwhile skills. Like I, I, I just like telling stories of, of athletes. That's, that's really what, what brings me a lot of joy and, and happiness and, and just everything's different. Like every, no two days are the same. That's, that's yeah. really the aspect that I like about it. You know, I remember I worked with Trent Rosecrans who is now at the yeah. athletic and Trent would always say that the, the for him, the reward was going to cover the game because he, he said writing could be tough for him. For me, I loved Monday through Thursday because that's when I got to do the feature rights uh, stories and the previews. And I got to do that storytelling. I loved covering a game, but like that's hard work. You got to follow stuff, particularly if you're covering high school football or Georgia. Games, are, games are easy. Games I mean, are the easy stuff. So you you just, it's just it's just all it's just all reactionary. Yeah. Like, it's, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous um, because we are, we are not athletes. I mean, you're the, you're the same size as I am. Like right. I was, I had very few athletic endeavors that I was going to be able to partake in, but like, to me, to me, writing a story on deadline and covering a game is basically a, is, is our version of competition. Yeah. Like I, I want to write a better story than the person who's sitting next to me. And yeah. I had, and I need to figure out a way to do that. And so that, that kind of gets the, the juices flowing for me. Like after I send in a, a Sunday night recap from a major tournament, like my adrenaline is pumping mm -hmm. and like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to sleep for two to three hours after that. Like, I just need to be able to just kind of calm down. And like, that's, that sounds absolutely ridiculous because yeah. we're all, all we're doing is just sitting at a keyboard typing or we're going to report and trying to dig up little details. But like, to me, it's a, it's a competitive sport. And that's, that's kind of what, what has kept me going. Well, and, and there's, if you're doing it, if you're writing a gamer, you're on a deadline. Now it may yep. be six hours. It may be 30 minutes. You don't know, but it is, you know, there's that 
it has to happen at this point. And that, that, that always drove me. Like, even if I was like, I don't really like this lead. I've got to do it. Got send to it, it. <laughs> send it. And like, there was so, and there was so many times, and I'm sure you had the exact same experience at the banner Herald. I mean, when we're in college, that is the be- absolute best training ground where I'm covering a high school football game or soccer or whatever the track and field, whatever the case may be. And they say, you've got 10 minutes to send me 400 words. I forget what the, what the conversion is now with, with newspaper inches. But at that time I, I knew what it was. You've got 10 minutes to send me 400 words. Like that is the absolute best training ground that you can have as a 18 to 22 year old of what it's going to be like. Now that I write for GolfChannel.com. you know, the internet is, is alive and well 24 seven and those kind of deadlines, you, you kind of always feel that crunch, but on Sunday night, they kind of let you, let you breathe a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you can take a little bit of time. It's not like you can, you know, wait until Monday morning to, to push send on it. Um, but I kind of miss that adrenaline rush of, of, of just having to crank it out. And I actually think when I, when I look back at it, some of my better stories were when you have, Oh yeah. You know, just a, an absolute finite number of minutes to be able to send in a story as opposed to just sitting there and trying to, to craft every single, uh, piece of punctuation exactly how you want it. There was something, I remember seeing this on Twitter months ago, but I firmly believe it. And I'm sure you would agree as well. If you want to learn how to be a good sports journalist, the first thing you need to do is cover high school athletics because there's no stat stat people. You're doing your own stuff. You are having to source everything. I mean, and there's, you're sending, I mean, I remember pulling over on, gosh, not I-20, maybe I-85 or something like that, pulling over on like at a Waffle House to borrow you know plug in at the at their you know their internet or whatever just to just to be able to send something while i'm driving back from a high school playoff game i mean i don't think you're a real sports journalist unless you file the story from like the mcdonald's right like, while, while eating while eating dollar menu because you're trying to save as much as you can from your per diem <laughs> like i remember i i think it was like tw- i think it was like 25 dollars a day that we would get to to cover a game and i remember just pinching pennies so hard uh, so by the end of the week, I could maybe, maybe take home uh, like a hundred bucks, but I, I totally agree. And so like, when I think back on my journey at Georgia, within the first couple of weeks, my freshman year, I went to the red and black um, and I was like, Oh, you know, it's a, it's the college newspaper. That's what I want to write for. You know, a lot of my sports writing heroes had written for the college newspaper. That's kind of how they got their start. Right. Um, I remember distinctly, they said that, that their, coverage plans were dictated by seniority mm-hmm. in other words it didn't matter if you were the best writer as a freshman you could not cover georgia football until you're either junior or senior right, right. that's just that's just how it worked it did not matter the skill whatsoever and i just said that's absolute bs walked out and i went to the banner herald where i met john caltaflighter um, jennifer Iannone, jeff cochran and that's kind of how i got my start but so i i mean i got to cover all the big time Georgia athletics, but it was because I proved myself covering prep sports. And so you're, you're exactly right. Like keeping your own stats, the Georgia SID is, is, is not coming over to you and saying, Hey, uh, I remember Zach Mettenberger back in the day, like Zach Mettenberger, he's 14 for 18 for 278 yards with three uh, TDs. And probably if we're, if we're being accurate, like seven interceptions, like that you're, you're, you're doing, you're doing it all yourself. And so I thought that was great training, learning to talk to high school athletes who are notoriously difficult interviews. 
like learning interview techniques with them. Uh, coaches can be difficult. Um, obviously the dead, deadline pressure, like we talked about, like I, I actually kind of miss the aspect of covering prep sports because to me, I don't think there's any better way to learn how to do it. Um, Cause you have like the fervent parent, <laughs> you have the fervent parents, right? Like who are, who are agonizing over every single word. Like so that teaches you just that, you, that, that every word really matters. So I think, I mean, it's, it's the perfect storm on how to learn how to do this. Well, and what I always told folks, it was not only uh, very rewarding uh, and cha- I mean, it was challenging, but the, the, the rewarding element of it was, I remember I, Clark Central girls lost season ended in the state basketball tournament. Um, they'd gotten the furthest they'd ever gotten. And the lone senior on the team did something fairly innocent at the end, but it was more of a, she was staying in there. They brought in some of the bench players, giving them some playing experience. And she was kind of pointing out where they should go. And I made that the lead to the story that she, something like she was a, she was a mentor till the end. And this student shows up at the Banner Herald two days later and asked to see me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's furious with me. Her parents are here. Who knows what's going to happen? And she was in tears because she said it was so moving. So like the other benefit of high school sports to me was there was this level like, yes, you had the obnoxious parents who could really drive you nuts, but there was a level of like community journalism and purity and innocence to it that I just don't think you find in a lot of places. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, that was back in the day of, of newspapers, right. Where, you know, right now we can, we can have all the metrics we want of, here's how many people are reading the story and here's how long they stay on the site and here's what they're interacting with, with the embeds in the story. Like we have all this data. I'm not necessarily sure it was great. If you have a, if you have a front page uh, story on a high school track star, that's on the front page of the Banner Herald, like people are going to read it. There's just a sense of community, uh, the access. That's the only other way that you can get that type of information. I, I, I agree. It really was one of the most rewarding experiences, I think, as a young journalist to be able to write and to have people come up to you and tell you like, hey, I read your story. I really liked it. Like to me, that's that's as good as it gets. What was it like working for John Cultiflighter? It was a crash course. Uh, that was a crash course of, of work hard, play hard, um, and kind of and kind of seeing the life of a of a sports journalist. I mean, working for for a daily newspaper where I think deadlines were what like eleven o'clock, and then you, and then you're putting the paper to bed at like at midnight, and you're probably staying out till two, and then you're waking up at like ten or eleven, and like that is, that's a that's a terrific life for a while, like. Had I stayed in that, I think you know, I certainly wouldn't have gotten married at the at the age I did, or I certainly wouldn't have kids now at at thirty four. Like it's just it's just a different breed. Uh, and and Cult of Flutter, I mean, he was he's a, a tremendous mentor to me, and just gave me so many opportunities to cover big time athletics, where places like like even the the Red and Black, who are essentially my peers, wouldn't have even given me that opportunity. And so for me to get the crash course at, at that age. Um, he, and he had, he, and just specifically to me, like he had such a love and appreciation for golf. Like he loved covering it. And mm-hmm. so every year when the Athens regional foundation classic, which was then on a nationwide tour, which became the web.com, which is now known as the corn Ferry tour. Like that came to town. Like he and I just absolutely blew it out of the water, treated it like it was the masters. Um, and that kind of 
that kind of really um, instilled in me knowing that I wanted to cover golf. John Kaltefeiter played, played a huge role in that for me. Today, Ryan is part of a team of writers and reporters covering everything from amateur and collegiate golf to the Masters, British Open, and Ryder Cup. Golf Channel is clearly the standard bearer for golf coverage across the world. And while Ryan's days are now filled with interviewing the world's best players, that doesn't mean he doesn't look back and miss the versatility that came with working at a traditional newspaper. If I had to do it all over again, I probably would have preferred to stay a traditional sports writer for longer. Like, I still miss covering football. I still miss covering baseball. I had an opportunity in college. I interned for MLB.com and covered the Braves for a summer. Like, that was just an absolutely incredible experience. There's nothing that beats covering a Georgia football game, like a primetime night game, like the absolute thrill and the adrenaline rush uh, of covering that. So if, if I had to do it all over again, and I'm not sure it would necessarily be in my control, I would have loved to do that for longer and then transition um, into golf. So what happened was I covered everything in college. Um, my first job out of college, it was really slim pickings and super competitive to try and get in. Uh, I went to a little... Uh, newspaper in Sebring, Florida, which is about an hour and a half away from Orlando, um, where I just wrote for uh, it was a five times a week newspaper, doing everything, writing, editing, page design, photography. I mean, that, that was an incredible experience of learning how to do every single thing. And so I'm covering every prep sport uh, you can imagine. And there's a tournament called the Harder Hall Invitational, okay. which is a pretty prestigious women's amateur tournament. Um, and I remember the one that I covered, it was 2010. It was in the winter, it was about 50 something degrees. And Lexi Thompson, who I believe was like 12 at that time, like super 12 or 14, super young. Um, she was the kind of headliner there. And just like with Call to Fighter, when the Athens Regional Foundation Classic came around, we blew it out of the water. Like I treated this thing like it was the 2019 Masters and Tiger and Tiger was going to win. Right. Um, like doing special sections by myself, like just writing a million features, columns, all the pictures, like Twitter at that time was just kind of getting going, like, like right. firing up Twitter and, and that type of thing. Um, and so what I did uh, was I sent those clips to the editor at Golf Week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is the type of stuff I can do. Um, I love an opportunity to do it on a bigger scale and more often rather than just a couple of times a year. Right. Um, he gets back to me and says, you know, we don't have any, don't have any openings right now. Um, this is good stuff though. I'll, I'll keep this in mind. I said, perfect. A week or two later comes back to me and says, a guy on the desk just quit. Uh, we'd like to interview you. And they hired me like a week later. And wow. so like, it was just happenstance um how i got my start like if that didn't happen if he's like now we're good and no one no one changed jobs uh, over the next couple of months or years like i'm not sure what would happen yeah uh it just so happened that that dude quit i got in and at, at this point i'm not sure i can get out like if if i'm 34 and i've been in golf for like a dozen years now i'm not sure i can just go to the athletic and say like hey man i'd like to join seth emerson and and cover georgia football like yeah probably pigeonholed myself a little bit, which I wouldn't have preferred to do. Um, but that's my journey and, and stuff I've been able to do, the people I've been able to meet, the events I've been able to cover wouldn't change it. Yeah. 
Well, you know, and uh, the the other thing I think is you you now you're sort of at the 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 mothership for golf coverage anyway, but you've you've carved out a very unique but necessary niche in the in the golf journalism space with your expertise on college golf. And that's something that I have long because I covered college golf. I covered Georgia when I was at the Banner Herald because we you know back then we actually had a, had the staff of like seven or eight people. But um you know, that's something that is, I think, gaining in popularity and also important to cover. And did you just, was that just what the beat was assigned to you when you were a golf week? Or did you just decide I'm going to focus on this? So there was kind of like a cast system at, at golf. We kind of like there was at the banner at the, uh, at the red and black, right? Like you couldn't just come in. <laughs> I couldn't just come into golf and be like, all right, I'm going to cover the masters and you a uh, guy who's been here for 25 years, you're going to you just sit on the bench. Didn't matter how good I was. Um, so you just kind of, grow up covering junior and college golf. Um, Julie Williams is still at golf league right now. I was there. DJ Pajowski, who's, who's part of no laying up Sean Martin, um, who's at pjtour.com. Like we were all kind of there at the same time. Um, And so like my first group of junior players, coincidentally enough was like the Jordan speed, Justin Thomas, Patrick Rogers, Ollie Schneider, Jans, Alexander Shoffley hadn't really established himself at that point, but like that was the class that I was covering. So my career in golf has kind of paralleled those guys, which has been really um, interesting and, and fun to watch yeah. over the past couple of years. But that was like the beat that I had at golf week. And so you kind of nurture that. And, you know, as you write better stories in junior golf and you get moved up to college and then, you know, I kind of liked it at golf. You could, you, I kind of had my, my hands in everything, um, which is kind of like what I do uh, now at golf channel. And, and when I transitioned over to golf channel, it was kind of just like, I was the token young guy. So <laughs> like when I started there, I was 25 and they're just like you young guy cover college golf. Cause we're going to make this into a commitment for us. I think we now air like six to eight college tournaments throughout the course of the year um, we have Brentley Roman on staff who like really digs into the minutia and really covers it um, on a, on a week to week basis. Um, and I, I absolutely love it. I think the the following that we've had since we put it on the air in 2014 um, has, has been huge. It's really grown the sport really helped identify some of these younger players. So when they get on the tour, it's not like, Hey, where'd this Jordan Spieth guy come from or, or, or boy, Victor Hovland, I never heard of him. And now like they, they can become quote unquote household names um, when they're still, when they're still playing college golf. Yeah. And now you're at golf channel. And the most impressive thing is you also are on air at times. Is that daunting? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Incredibly daunting. Um, I used to absolutely despise it. um, And I would come up with excuses like that you wouldn't believe just to, just to not get on air. Um, it's still really nerve wracking for me. I'm just so much more comfortable just on a keyboard, being able to process my thoughts that way. Um, I, I kind of grew up with a stutter and so I've kind of had to work through that and I'm just like scared to death that I'm going to just have like a meltdown on camera or say something that I shouldn't. And, and all of a sudden uh, I'm in hot water. So I've really had to learn uh, how to do how to do camera work. And like, if I turn my laptop around right now, I have a ring light that's right here with an iPhone. And if I wanted to broadcast live television, all I have to do is turn that iPhone on, click this app called live view. Mm-hmm. They would connect it back in Stanford and I can be on the air. Like it's, it's crazy how, how quickly that can go. 
Um, and I think my first TV hit was back in like 2013 and they've just kind of used me more and more now, like before the pandemic, like I was on what used to be known as morning drive. Yeah. Um, a lot and like being on the desk and just cutting up and talking about golf for two hours. I just absolutely loved it. Uh, it's a little bit of a different dynamic now because the studio is not in Orlando. It's up in Connecticut. Um, and I do a lot of the stuff either remotely or when I'm on site at tournaments. Um, but that's definitely been, there's been some growing pains. Um, I've really had to study and, and kind of learn how to do it. And that's not, I don't think that's any, that's not too dissimilar from what I had to do with writing. Right. Um, like I remember high school, even college, like I would go line by line in stories, basically taking notes of like how they're crafting the stories. Right. And I'd write it down in a notebook and I would try to incorporate some of those elements into my writing. Like it was, to me, it was an art form to me. And to me, it is, it still is an art form. It's ever evolving. That's kind of the same way that I approach TV now, where if I'm watching, let's say Steve Stans conduct interviews, like I'm seeing how he's crafting the interviews, how he's opening them, how he's closing them, his rapport with the players. If I'm on the desk, I'm observing, let's say, what Aaron Oberholzer is doing, how he's taking the questions, how he finishes it, how he incorporates some of the other members on the desk. Like to me, you, that's the only way that I'm going to improve because, you know, you're probably not going to get feedback from executives or producers like once one show's over they're on to the next show they they right. don't really care what you did and so you have to take it upon yourself to be a professional and and most importantly just want to learn and and want to get better and that's something that i've kind of prided myself on is is trying to get trying to get better each and every each and every time i do it you know one thing i don't i can't believe that you and i have not talked about this before but I did not realize you and I have a lot of similar parallels, both from the Banner Herald, knowing John Kaltefleiter, um, but you, I have struggled with a stutter since I was a child and it was much more severe when I was younger. And it was more of a same. Yeah. I would, I would get going and I would talk faster and faster. And then I would hit blocks and I would have certain letters or sounds. I, I would just struggle on. And then the anxiety builds mind. I had a, uh, one of my blocks was a hard M. Well, when your last name is McGinty and you work in journalism and you're calling someone to say, hey, coach, this is Jonathan, you kind of freeze, you know, it, it was tough. So I, I was in my early 20s when I finally went and saw a speech therapist and began working through it. What was, you know, it, and I don't think folks realize it's a daily thing. Like you're never, you're never past it. It's always in the back of your mind but I'm just kind of curious, what are, what do you do and how have you worked to overcome it? Mine was a lot of anxiety, um, anxiety driven. So I would, I would get myself worked up beforehand, either before calling someone or going on the air, whatever the case may be. And I would just kind of have a block where I couldn't get from point A to point B. Like I knew where I wanted to go right. and I, I, I just couldn't do it one of the tips that I've found to be super helpful is just slowing down. It's really hard to stutter when you just pace everything down. And I'm sure when I, when I go back and listen to this conversation, I'll be like, man, you talk so fast, right? Because this is, this is a comfortable setting. Just, just you and I talking. But if, if this was Tiger Woods on the other line, like I'd probably speed up because you're a little bit more anxious, you're a little bit more nervous. You want to make sure that you're presenting well, um, and it, and that's kind of where I would run into issues. So mine was really a lot of 
anxiety driven. Um, I didn't like the kind of the spotlight being on me, which, which didn't help that kind of only fueled some of the performance anxiety. Um, but I've, I've noticed, and I've, I've certainly made significant strides from where I was as a kid and even in high school, um, to where if I can just slow it down, I can kind of mask some of those speech deficiencies that I have. Yeah. Like I, one of the tips that was passed on to me was the same thing and it, it would, it would call for me. I don't do it as much anymore, but I would begin the day by reading a page out loud and they would say, read it, you know, 20 times slower than you think you should. Yeah. Because 20 times slower to you is actually probably pretty close to what folks want to hear from you. Right. Exactly. Like that's what I've noticed now. Like, boy, he talks really. And like, I remember Tim Rosefort, he said something on morning drive to me. He goes, man, you speak so clearly and concisely and just really consistently. And I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, cause I thought that I was like motoring through it. Right. But like, that's what you want to hear on TV. If someone's just absolutely going all over the place and going a million miles a minute, like it's really hard to follow and it, it can be kind of distracting. Um, and so that's something that I've really tried to do consciously. And I feel like that helps me so much from, to get from point A to point B. Cause I remember one of the things Molly Solomon told me was if you can't say your answer in 30 to 45 seconds, mostly 30 seconds, then it's not worth saying. And you need to like revise what you wanted to say. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I've always kind of tried to cater to is, is if Todd Lewis or Steve Burkowski teased me up on something, I need to have a 30 second answer mm -hmm. a, because I think it's better for the viewer to follow along B it's just, it's just more concise. Like no one yeah. wants a rambling answer and see it's less time for you to screw up. Right. <laughs> right. Like you were less. Yes. You are much less likely to screw up in 30 seconds than you are in a rambling 90 second answer or to have some of these other speech impediments crop up. That's kind of what my belief is. I might, I might even be too concise on TV. A lot of times they're like, give me something else, but like, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> that's, that's just kind of like my habit is to speak, is to speak in, in, in kind of a short manner as I, as I, as I ramble through this answer. No, that was, that was good. No, we like in, in PR, uh, what we would always do is we would tell people if we did a media training with them for folks who were anxious, we would always say, be sure you find your period because it, what you're saying, you just want to get those, those three or four key points out and then find a period. If the journalist or the person questioning you, they'll have a follow-up question if they want to know more. And then you say a few more things and move on. And most of that's to prevent you from confusing them, prevent you from confusing you and, and all of that. Yeah. Just going like places you don't want to go right with your answer. I, like that's, that's a find your period. I kind of, I don't, I might, I might incorporate the next time I do next time I do live from or golf central. Thanks. I'm giving you, I'm giving you tips here. Who knew? Yeah. Let me, let me, let me write that down. <laughs> um, well, the last question that I'm going to ask you is not golf related at all. It's going to bring it all back to the beginning, talking about Georgia, because I, I asked you this for a piece I was working on. And this is fascinating to me that this is the moment you realized SEC football was kind of a big deal. And it's the 05 Georgia Auburn game, which was, I think Georgia fans have blocked it out of their memory, but like that was a heartbreaking, like I remember being in the stands and that being a heartbreaking loss. Why is that game the one that made you realize, well, holy crap, this is a, this is a big deal? 
So I had like a rough transition to Georgia coming from New York. I mean, I literally did not know anyone. And so those first couple of months, obviously you're, you're homesick. Um, I'm kind of shy by nature initially. Once I know you, like, I, like, I know you, Jonathan, like I'm pretty open and I like to joke around, but I kind of keep to myself if I, if I'm unfamiliar um, with, with people or in an environment. So I had a first couple of months there where I, I wasn't loving it. And then, you know, I started meeting a couple of people on, on our floor and we go to a couple of games together. And so I was just kind of ingratiating myself with that group. And it's Adam Rosenberg, who you may or may not have known. He was a former sports writer, now a lawyer uh, in the Athens area. And so he is like a diehard Georgia fan. I just didn't, I mean, I, I wasn't a diehard Georgia fan yet, right? Like I just got there. I was there to kind of cover the action as a sports writer. You kind of are, are, are trying not to be too emotionally sure. invested in the outcome, right? And that game and the way that Georgia lost, which was like, it was like a 70-yard pass on fourth and 26. Yeah, it was fourth, something like that fourth, like with like two plus. minutes left. Yeah, and, and and the worst part was Georgia tackled him at the one yard line rather than just yes. let score and get the ball back. Yes, which just kind of prolonged the uh, uh, the the agony of of what was soon to be a defeat. And like seeing seeing grown men cry in the stands, seeing just like the utter devastation, just like across the stadium, it was an absolute pal that just like fell over. Sanford Stadium and just like the sad trapes back to downtown where they're going to go drown their miseries like that experience just said like wow the SEC just hits different like this like it's it's a cliche now that the football is a religion in the south like people were acting like a family member had been lost and I was like this is awesome like <laughs> Like I didn't I didn't like that Georgia lost obviously although I didn't care as much as certainly some of my friends um, I was like, it is, it is crazy how invested emotionally, spiritually, metaphysically that, that these people are, um, that, that was kind of my, my awakening. And that, that actually, that moment actually made me love Georgia more than any other in college was just seeing how much that school pride and that team meant to 95,000 people. I mean, and I feel like if we're going to get you, if we're going to pull you into this family, it it it's only fitting that it's a inexplicable- it has to be a crushing loss. Yeah, yeah, so it's, yeah. yeah, it's not it's not going to be a Sugar Bowl victory over Hawaii. <laughs> no, <laughs> though that was fun. That just wasn't the same experience. And seeing Cole Brennan get like decapitated, like yeah, that was that was cool. And there was like a brief moment there where, whereas Georgia fans, we thought that we were going to be playing for the national championship. Like yeah, that was cool, but that was not the moment that that I fell in love with Georgia. And now, and, and now like, if you go into my closet, it is, is 90 to 95% either golf channel polos or Georgia apparel. Like I have Georgia stuff everywhere. I've got a flag out front. I've got a sign out front. I've got, I mean, I've got people give me grief for how much Georgia stuff I have in the backdrop of my, of my live shot here. I have Georgia stickers on my golf cart that we take now around Naki. Like I'm absolutely obsessed in that moment was the moment that kind of like my Georgia fandom was, was sparked. Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com and be sure to let us know what you think of the show.